How do you do, fellow kids? How do you do, fellow kids? What? Welcome back to the Wealthy Idiot Show. We have a show for you today. We've got Nick Cannon, student loans, the world is ending. You're not going to want to miss it. Let's get going. Welcome back to the Wealthy Idiot Show. My name's AJ. And before we begin, make sure to like and subscribe. It helps us out tremendously. And by smashing that like button especially, it helps us out with the YouTube algorithm, getting this message of financial peace and financial independence out to as many people as possible. So what is going on in the world? So the first headline of the week is that Nick Cannon says he needs to make $100 million in order to support his 11 children. I did the math on that and I figured out that that equals about nine-ish million dollars per kid. I have four kids, which means I need to be making about $36 million per year. I have not disclosed what I make on this channel, but I can promise you it's nowhere near $36 million. So we have a long ways to go, guys. Me and you, we can do this together. Next article. Investopedia reports that student loan payments are set to resume regardless of court decisions on forgiveness. So... If you've been following this channel, we've been kind of following the timeline of the student loan debt forgiveness and what's going to happen with that. In my very first video, I came out and said that student loan debt forgiveness isn't going to happen. That's not a thing that's going to occur. It's just a political tool used to try and collect votes. And what we're going to see is this go back and forth until eventually we're all forced to just repay our student loans by ourselves like we said at the beginning. And it looks like we're still on that path to make this happen. So... Originally, um, student loans were were a debate topic in the presidential election. Then the student loans became forgiven, and I said I don't expect anything to actually happen for that. They, you know, they came out with a whole plan. I just didn't see it happening at the time. The arguments I gave for why I didn't think this was going to happen was that there were huge groups of people who wanted all the student loan debt forgiven, and there were huge groups of people who wanted no student loan debt forgiven, and then there's the majority of people somewhere in the middle saying like, you know, we shouldn't be forgiving student loan debt for rich people. We should probably focus on people who need it the most, and then that creates a conflict with people who can't afford college at all. So we're going to pay out tens of thousands of dollars to people who went to college who statistically will make more money but we're not going to send tens of thousands of dollars to people who never had the opportunity to go to school it's a very highly conflict driven topic that makes it really really hard for a politician to pick something that's going to be a winning thing for all the groups involved that may be voting it's actually better for that politician to just point out the problem without discussing a solution because that means that a huge majority of people get incorporated because they believe it's a problem even if they don't agree with the solution so then when he finally went through with it i said i was, I was surprised that that happened but i wouldn't be surprised if it got overturned so the court stepped in and said hey look dude Uncle Joe, you can't be just forgiving student loan debt. You don't have the authority to do that by yourself. Even Joe and Nancy Pelosi themselves said, hey, we don't have the authority to do this by ourselves. And then a month later, tried to do it anyways. So yeah, the courts shot that down. And now we are here today where student loan debt is not forgiven and payments are set to resume. And it's also kind of convenient that that occurred right before the um, campaigning is starting for next year's election for president. So that doesn't seem surprising that this whole thing took that exact circle. 
And what's going to end up happening is whatever politician takes on the issue of student loan debt forgiveness, it could be Joe Biden again, you know, saying, hey, it was Republican courts that stopped me. So if you really want to solve this problem, you got to give me a second term. I wouldn't be surprised if that took place. And I also wouldn't be surprised if this doesn't happen in a second term either, because that's the nature of how finance stuff does in politics. Our next article from the Associated Press says experts metallic object that crashed into New Jersey home was a meteorite. So meteorites are falling on homes now. You know, basically end times are happening and I guess that's about it. So there's really no point in talking any further if the world is about to end. But no, I'm just kidding. But it is kind of cool. I mean, I'm glad that nobody got hit by a meteorite. That honestly is one of those like fears that unlocked in my brain when I saw this for the first time. I'm like, oh man, now I have to worry about meteorites falling on my head. But nobody got hurt, and this giant meteorite landed in their home. It says it in a uh, New Jersey home this week, smashing the hardwood floor, bouncing around the bedroom, and it ended up being a meteorite after they inspected it. I wonder if they got to keep their meteorite. I would, I would like put that thing in like a, like a glass box, like it was a, you know, a football that you won the championship with or something. I think that would be super cool. Next topic by Bloomberg is debt limit talks move into back channel as leaders meetings put off. So what happened this last week is Republicans and Democrats tried to get together to talk about how to solve this debt ceiling problem and they couldn't do it. So they walked out and everybody's still panicking about the debt ceiling. Um, It looks like there was supposed to be a meeting Friday, which by the time this is released, it will be yesterday, right? It's right now. And they put this meeting off saying that they were going to try it again later. In the article, it says Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the money could run out as soon as June 1st, but maybe not that quickly. The Congressional Budget Office warned today there's a significant risk of a default in the first two weeks of June. You know, I don't have an opinion necessarily on the debt limit so much, uh, except to say that in the past when this debt limit stuff has been hit, Um, The government has kind of forced pain where it didn't need to exist. Last time this occurred, there were government officials that came or that were that leaked saying that they needed to make sure that people felt the pain from it because they needed people to understand who was on the right side of the issue. We're not going to default on anything. The United States government makes plenty of money. What they need to do is stop spending all of it and then living off of this debt. And we have not figured that out right? Um, We can tax everybody into oblivion and still not cover what we're paying out. So at some point it has to bite us. The only solution that we have is to devalue the debt. And that means printing more money. And that also devalues the cash that's being paid out to people, which will impact the poor the most. So in order to compensate for all the money that we're spending supposedly on the poor, wink, wink, we have to destroy the poor, Seems like a cycle that can't go on forever. I don't exactly know how that's going to end, but I do know that neither political party seems interested in actually solving the issue. And the last most important article that we found was from Reuters, Big U.S. Banks to Pay Billions to Replenish Failure Fund. Now, if you just read this title, your initial thought would be like, oh, good, big banks are going to be paying out billions of dollars to compensate for the fact that banks are failing, which you know, sounds fine, except let's dig in a smidgen further. Large U.S. lenders will bear most of the cost of replenishing the deposit insurance fund that was drained of $16 billion by the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and two other lenders. Although mid-sized banks will also be on the hook, the Federal Reserve Insurance Corporation, the FDIC, said on Thursday, the bank regulator will apply a special assessment fee of 0.125% to uninsured deposits of lenders in excess of $5 billion. Based on the amount of uninsured deposits and banks held at the end of 2022, the FDIC proposed at a board meeting. 
So what's going to happen is that for every huge amount for lent, when they say lenders, they're referring to banks that lend money, like giant banks lending money. We're talking about Bank of America, Chase, etc. They're going to put a fee on huge amounts of money stored with inside these banks for any of that money that's uninsured. So what happens is you put money into a bank and it says we're FDIC insured. The FDIC only insures things up to $250,000. Everything else is at risk. So if you're, let's say, Google, for example, and you're dumping tons and tons of money into a particular bank, let's say Chase Bank, for example, you're going to have way more than $5 billion in deposits. That means that when the, the bank goes through and um, scapes all that money out to turn around and lend it to people because that's how banks make money, they are going to now be charged a fee in order to do that. And this fee is going to cover other banks who are falling apart. The people who will pay the fee will be the, at, at the end of the day, it'll be transferred over to the people who are putting money into the bank. So what's going to happen is Chase will be like, thanks Google for putting all this money into the bank. This is how much we charge. And they're going to incorporate this fee and all the other banks will do the same because they're all required to incorporate this fee for large deposits. Those charges will be incorporated into all of our purchases. So essentially what's happening is indirectly, we are going to be paying for the fact that all these banks gambled with our money and lost. So let's do that circle one more time. We will pay all for all these banks who took our money, gambled it, and lost it. Hmm. Not exactly sure that that's the plan that uh, everybody thought was going to be happening, but uh, it's a little bit concerning. It seems like a small, small percentage, so maybe it's not going to be that big of a deal, but we'll keep an eye on it, and we'll let you guys know. Well, that concludes the news portion of today's show. We're going to get into the next portion, which is our React video. And we found a video where someone's talking about saving up for a uh, purchasing a house in today's housing environment. And they called Dave Ramsey to try and figure out what it is they should be doing. We think our answer is different from Dave's. And I think that our answer is better than Dave's. But I'll let you decide that. Let's just check out the video and find out. Well, hi, Josh. How are you? Doing great. How are you doing, Dave? Better than I deserve. What's up? So, a question for you. My wife and I have a household income of just over 100000 and we're completely through baby steps one through three. And I'm wondering how, with the current house market, we don't have a home, are saving up for a home, how do baby steps four and five change for us? Why would they change? Well, we are just saving up for a home and working towards that down payment. We're almost ready for the down payment. Okay, I, I don't make it a secret that George is probably the personality on Dave Ramsey's show that bugs me the most. And step number six for Dave Ramsey is pay off your home early. So if you don't have a home, that is a little bit confusing. And what the caller is asking about is like, hey, for we finished step three, which is, you know, save enough for three to six months of an emergency fund. And now we're looking at investing 15% of our household income into retirement. But instead of doing that, we want to, you know, put it into a house. We want to purchase a house. And George is like, why would that matter? <laughs> okay, George. The thing we call baby step 3B. I have heard a little bit, yes. Okay, that's what you're talking about, I think. Okay, so you finish your emergency fund at three. That is the point at which you would begin to save for your home. And some people push pause and don't do four and don't start saving for retirement until they build their fully, until they get their house down payment. Some people mm -hmm. save for a house 
while they're putting something in retirement up to 15%. All right, we talked about this in last week's episode in the review is that I have a hard time with considering your house as a part of your retirement, your net worth for retirement, especially if you plan on not taking debt out against your house or you're not going to sell it and use that income, you know, that that capital gain somehow. And if you don't do those two things, and a, a commenter pointed out on one of our shorts is that, because I gave this example, if you have a million dollar or a hundred thousand dollar home and you have a $10 million home, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. If you're not going to use the equity in those homes, if you're not going to move and you're not going to take out debt, it could, it doesn't matter what value your home is. It doesn't change your retirement plan. And someone commented, and it was a really good comment, which is like, well, technically speaking, the $10 million home will actually be significantly more expensive in retirement because you have property taxes, insurance will be way higher, upkeep is way higher. So that is actually more concerning. The more net worth you have in your home, if you don't plan on selling it, if you don't plan on taking out uh, any debt against it, the more net worth your home is actually worth, the higher impact that will have on your retirement. So when Dave is talking here about like, you know, you could pause this retirement savings and retirement investing and go buy a home. I struggle with that because let's do it that. You know, if younger me came to me and was like, hey, AJ, you know, how should I start setting this stuff up? The first thing I would try and figure out is like, all right, so, you know, inflation adjusted, what are you trying to, you know, get as income in the future? What's going to be the thing, the amount of money that you're going to need at a retirement point? And then I would figure out backwards, like, okay, so if you're using the 4% rule, that means that we can withdraw 4% of our entire portfolio every year and be safe for 30 years at, at the minimum. Or, yeah. So, if I took that rule and I said, okay, so how much per year? And then how much would I need in order for that 4% to get taken out? That's how much I need at retirement. And then I would tell that younger version of myself, um, you're going to need to start investing this much if we can expect a certain amount of compound interest to get there by retirement so that you can have that much money. That amount of investing would be unrelated to your personal home right? So you could say like, you know, my personal home, I'm going to have paid off. So I'm going to have less expenses in retirement, which is awesome, which means you need less income, but you still need to get to that retirement amount. Whatever your retirement amount is, you're going to need to get to that. And if you're buying a house is ruining that goal, you're doing it wrong. And so the fact that Dave's not pointing this out, like, Hey, look, dude, like, you know, you could put money into your personal house all day. Let's say our $10 million house dollar house example. Let's buy the max house we could possibly get. Let's stretch ourselves as thin as humanly possible. Let's buy that house. We'll chuck a huge down payment at it. And then when we hit retirement, we have $200,000. We're going to be forced to sell our home. I mean, that, that is the only answer, right? So you can do either one or both somewhere in there. So how long is this going to take to save up your down payment? Uh, well, you have a specific goal? So we're, we're thinking mid next year, we're going to have uh, a little bit larger down payment than is required. And we're doing 8% of our household income into Roths right now. Okay. And so while doing 8%, you'll still have that down payment by mid next year. Yeah, we're putting away 8% into the Roths and about 40% of savings just goes away into CDs until we're ready for a down payment. That's fabulous, Josh. Well done. Yeah, that's what we would call baby step 3B. So 3B okay. is all of your savings goes into um, into your house down payment fund up or down to, 
a little bit less, a little bit less, a little bit less than all because you're putting some or up to 15% into retirement. So you're putting eight into retirement and you're still going to make your down payment goals. Doesn't change a thing. It's exactly what I would do. Have at it. Okay. And then would you hold off at all until interest rates come down nope. or just when we get that down payment ready? No, nope. buy a house when you're ready. Okay. Because here's the thing. If interest rates come down after you buy the house, refinance. Okay. House prices aren't coming down. We've not seen substantial drops in house prices ever in the real estate market except during the 2008 debacle. And we're not going to see them now. We've told you this for two years because we've still got a shortage of housing. There's not enough inventory. Too many buyers chasing too few items causes price to maintain stability or go up. So house prices are going to be going up. And I wouldn't sit around and watch the house prices go up while I'm waiting on interest rates to go down. So he's rightish. Um, I would. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna address the what I think he should do with his money. I think he's killing it. You know, eight percent into a Roth IRA. Um, for those who don't know, that's pre-taxed investments where you get to take out everything that you've gained tax-free when you retire. It's probably the most powerful, you know, financial cheat code right now is Roth IRA um, and 401k match. Those two. So I think he's doing great there. Um, and then he's taking 40% and saving it for a house. He's killing it. Like, and I'm going to address what I think he should do with that. As far as houses, we've have seen a housing price drop, especially like I live in the Bay area in California. We've seen like uh, at least a 20% drop here. There's drops other places. There's expected to be more drops. And the reason is because Dave's right on the first half, which is like, there's not a lot of sellers. People aren't selling. Cause the problem is you bought a home in like 2019 for like a two point. 1% interest rate or something, 2.0% interest rate. And you can't ever go anywhere else. Like if you were to sell that house that you bought, even though the equity increased on it and turn around and take that over to a house that you could afford, um, you're because the interest rates have gone way up, you'd, it'd be like a lateral move, right? You're like the monthly payment you would have would be like the same. And the house would be either the same or worse in order to maintain that. So it doesn't make sense right now for people to be moving. So because of that, there's not a whole lot of people selling, but also there's not a whole lot of people buying because interest rates are so high and the house prices have not fallen. You're seeing stuff where it's like, you know, the basic house in like San Jose, California is going to cost you like $13,000 a month. Who has $13,000 a month? Engineers here who are getting paid well don't have $13,000 a month. That's a crazy number. So because of that, we're not seeing a huge amount of buyers. So yes, there's not a huge amount of sellers. There's also not a huge amount of buyers. Housing prices have fallen somewhat. They do look like they're being pulled down. You know, On a month-to-month -month basis, they kind of go up and then down again, but overall they're, they're, they're still sliding downwards. And if, if we hit a point where like, you know, a lot of people are losing jobs and they're struggling, which is exactly what the federal reserve wants, or inflation goes up to the point where people cannot afford to live on the job that they had before. And things are too expensive, including their mortgage. We're going to start to see people having to sell, even if they don't want to. And we're going to start to see foreclosures. And I think that we're slowly getting there. If you remember last or two weeks ago, I had DC on, we were talking about how low the savings rate was and how high the debt and credit card rate was. We're getting you know, closer and closer to this like breaking point where people just won't be able to survive 
on what they have and they're going to have to be put into a position to reclaim the equity in their home. If enough people have to do that, that's what a crash happened. So 2008, enough people had to try and reclaim their equity and they had to do it all at once because of a you know particular event that occurred where the economy faltered a little bit and bam, all those houses hit. We might see something um, going on like that. We're, we're seeing increases in foreclosures. Uh, SoFi, after a period of historic lows, foreclosure rates in the U.S. are once again on the rise. According to property data from Adam, the number of houses units with foreclosures filings in March was 36,600, a nearly 10% increase from the previous year. So you have a 10% increase on foreclosures that can't be good. And at some point, there's got to be a break. So when Dave keeps sitting here and saying, like, you know, houses won't go down, houses won't go down, they have gone down. And we pointed that out. And he changed his language. He was like, houses don't go down for too long. And then now, you know, we're showing you, yeah, there's some uncertainty here. So if it was me, um, I don't know what I would do here. I like... It's, it's tricky. If I had to buy a house right now, you know, should I wait a year? It could get worse in a year. It could get better in a year. It, it's always hard to know what's going to happen in the future. I prefer to put myself in a situation where I'm not required to make that decision and I can wait until the moment is exactly right and then strike when it's right. Right. So, you, you know, kind of give, you know, a little opening there for that. And, um, I've got some more thoughts on that, but we'll, we'll get back in. I don't time the stock market or the real estate market. Both, exactly. Both involve some risk. And here's the, the, the only time I would time the real estate market is if I can't find a deal when I'm buying investment property. And then wait. Because the market's like white hot and there is no deals. I'm just don't buy unless I get a good, good deal. Dave's right on that. And George saying, I don't time the real estate market. George has bought like a house. Like a, like one time. Like you haven't timed anything, dude. Get out of here. He's like no life experience and he talks like he knows everything. That's why he drives me the most crazy. I can't stand it. Period. I do not buy investment property unless I steal it. Period. I want to get a great buy on investment property. Your money's made at the buy on that. But as far as your personal residence goes, buy when you're ready, which is when you're debt free. Have your emergency fund in place and have saved your down payment. Yeah. And I get interest rates have got people freaked out because, you know, it's hundreds of dollars more in your payment. And they're going, well, I need to wait. The problem, like you're saying, Dave, is those same people are going to call us and say, Dave, I waited and now the home price is 100000 more than it was. Well, and there's no guarantee interest rates come down. I mean, we just up. saw the, the Fed I mean, just... What if you sat around and waited and they went to 10? Yeah, they just raised the rates again. So we just don't know. In 1978, September, I got my real estate license. I was 18. That was the year interest rates went from nine and three quarters to 10% for the very first time ever. And if it did it then, and then it went on up to 18 before it came back down, and it took it a decade to do that reversal, to go on up and then back down. Uh, if it did it then, why can't it do it now? I mean, I don't know. These, these bozos continue to screw with this. They're, they're going to mess it up. I mean, so I wouldn't be sitting around waiting on the outside environment to get you ready. You get ready, strike while the iron's hot. So that's the end of the video. So, okay, so I got to lay in my solution. He's right there at the investing bit on the back. It's, um, you you know, you run the numbers for your investing plan for real estate and I can link to it. I, I did an episode where I showed how I run the numbers for stuff and you go find something that works for those numbers. And if that, if you find a deal that works and you put it in and someone comes and overbids you, but that overbid is outside your, you know, range, Oh, well, you skip it. You move on to the next one. Because like the investing thing is not about like, oh, I'm emotionally tied to this property. It's about like making sure those numbers actually work. 
But here's my thing, and this is my strategy, and I've kind of been vindicated recently because the guy who does that Get Rich show on Netflix, let's see, How to, How to Get Rich by Ramit, I think that's his name, Ramit, um, he kind of vindicated my thing too, which was like, you know, at the end of the day, one of like the first baby step that we teach is figure out what your net worth number is. Every time you make a financial decision, you make that decision based off of what impacts that that net worth number the least or what grows that net worth number the greatest over time. And that's how you kind of focus your mindset around what you do with money. And then as that goes on, like you will have the opportunity to make decisions on purchasing homes and stuff, right? But if you go into it in the mindset of like, oh, I want a home because it's a good investment. Oh, I want this because it's a good investment. I want to spend money over here because it's a good investment. You're not paying attention to that net worth number and you're not focusing on how to grow that number. You're going to end up being in a position where like you could be house wealthy, but not wealthy, like not retirement wealthy. You're not going to hit your goals. You're not going to be figuring that stuff out. One of my favorite sayings was, um, you know, focus on your net worth and cash will come. But if you focus on your cash, it's your net worth is never going to be there. And I, I believe that that's true. And that's why we put net worth as the first baby step that we have. So focus on building that net worth number and you'll get the cash. You'll have the cash to be able to purchase a home. This dude is investing like 48% of his income. It's like 40% is going into savings and 8% is going into a Roth IRA. If he was to start investing 48% of his income within you know, 10 years, he's going to be in a place where he could like purchase a home, no problem. And it's, it's not going to impact his net worth like at all. Right. But as of right now, what he's doing could impact his net worth greatly because he's more focused on the home than he's focused on actually building his net worth. And so if I was, you know, if this was me asking me this question, what I would do is invest this money. Like, don't worry about where it's going. Invest the money. Live as cheaply as you can. Get to 50%. You're already at 48. Get to 50% of investing and invest, you know, over this next decade as hard as you can. Every raise that you get, every bonus you get, chuck that into investments. I would put thing. I'd put my money into things like the um, index funds against the S&P 500, um, you know, whole market index funds is broad based already. And then after a while, I would start getting into some real estate. And if you get into real estate in your area, you have a good area for that. You could put yourself into a position where one of those properties ends up becoming your home. So I think that's what I would do. Focus on that net worth number. This guy could be extremely wealthy and could have the home of his dreams at some point. And I think that hyper focusing on that as your goal right now is going to end up damaging you later in retirement as you have less actual net worth, usable net worth, like not stuck in a home. So if you disagree with that, let me know. I'd be interested to know like where the disagreements are here. I think this is nuanced. Obviously, he's in a great place if he could save enough cash within a year or, or a little bit more than a year, I think he said, to put a big down payment on a home. He's, he's in a good spot. He's putting in 58, uh, 48%. So if you got a different idea, let me know. But I really think you should be investing hard. And we'll worry about the home later. And uh, I think that will give him the best outcome. All right, moving into the last segment of today, we talk about random personal finance topics, and I've started reviewing the Bible for the, the whole life insurance people called Becoming Your Own Banker by R. Nelson Nash. And I've always struggled with this concept. It's it's something, you know, I, I, a commenter said recently, like, you know, oh, you, you agree with Dave Ramsey on this topic of not liking whole life insurance. And I was thinking like, well, Really, initially, I wanted to prove whole life insurance was good 
just because Dave said no. Like that was my thought process. And I went on a mission to try and prove it. And I was having a hard time figuring it out. Like there's just, there's just like so many little bits that are hard to put your finger on. And the salespeople, especially the salespeople around infinite banking and stuff are like really tricky around this because they'll do things where they'll, they'll be like, that's not tangible. It's a mindset thing. Like you don't know what the future holds. Like they'll, they'll tell you all these like non-tangible things in order to try and cover for the fact that like on paper, it doesn't look as great as they think it does. Um, but they said, I have to read this book. So one of the questions I keep asking them is what unique thing does whole life insurance give me that I can't get anywhere else that's worth the cost because you know, one of the things our whole life friends never talk about is that this is, this has costs to it, right? Just watched a video recently where the guy talked about like, if you had a bank that did all these things, wouldn't you want to go to that bank? Like, wouldn't you use that bank? And he's like, that bank exists as it turns out, except that it's called insurance. And he's like, if you can get over that fact, you know, you could be rich like the rest of us. I don't know if you said that last part, but um, the thing it conveniently glazed over was the cost part. Like it just didn't talk about that at all. Like there's an actual cost to this, not just a cost, but an opportunity cost. So, and because we're trying to focus on building that net worth number and that's our goal, we have to know what the cost and opportunity costs are in order to measure if this is a good strategy or not. So when I ask that question, most of the time I get back an answer that's something like, um, well, that's tax-free. Yeah, but so is my plan. My plan is tax-free. I don't pay anybody for that. Oh, you give it to your kids. Ah, so so does mine. I can give mine to my kids. I, I don't pay taxes for that. Oh, well, you know, uh, it's stable. I mean, mine's stable too. Like, it has a great history. Like, I, like I, I don't know what else to tell you. So at the end, usually what they'll say is you have to read this book. This book right here is the Bible that tells you, like, um, one of the commenters specifically was like, I went on this journey of researching this for four straight years. And once I read this book, I knew. So like I said in the last episode, there's a nugget of truth in this book. Supposedly, we just have to go and find it. But that nugget of truth is not in chapter two. I'll tell you that much for sure. <laughs> All right. So I just finished chapter two of this book and it's called the human problems. And what he attempts to do here in chapter two is he tries to break down the different you know, human problems that influence us, that mess us up for different things like finances or whatever. And he's trying to relate these human problems to the reason why people struggle with figuring out how to do this whole be your own banking thing. Uh, the first rule he talks about is what's called Parkinson's law, which is work expands to meet the time envelope allowed. And the example he gives is like, give someone a task and say, you have three days to complete it. That person will complete it late on the third day. Tell them they have 30 days to complete it. It will complete late on the 30th day. All right. I can attest as a manager, I could say that that's true. You give someone a task and oftentimes if you give them a timeline for when it has to be complete, they get it done just after that timeline. And if you squeeze the timeline down, they still get it done just after the timeline. It could be way sooner. It could be way later, depending on how you did that timeline. Uh, but like most everything so far in this book, that bit doesn't end with an actual point. He just makes that statement. So we, I guess we just got to take it and hope that maybe at some point he wraps around and we figure out what that means. So the next law that he covers is called Willie Sutton's law. Willie Sutton's law says wherever wealth is accumulated, someone will try and steal it. Um, and he does point out here, like, you know, it's not necessarily that someone's going to try and steal it. It's that, you know, they will try and take it through whatever means that they have available to them. Um, whether that be like, you know, providing you a product, which you pay for, or, 
Um, and then he goes on to give the example of the IRS. The IRS is just like, we make it legal for us to come in and shave, you know, huge chunks of money off your paycheck. Um, one thing I thought was really interesting in this section that I disagree with tremendously, I have a feeling this is going to come back at some point. He makes the statement that when the government starts sensing a little bit of unrest, um, they'll start making exceptions to rules in order to alleviate the pressure. Like the the government's a pressure cooker; they're just you know tightening down, tightening down, and then uh, because stuff you know people eventually have a breaking point, they're struggling, they're stressing out, they start to relax those rules or find ways to kind of reduce them in order to make people happy. The quote goes. When taxation becomes onerous to the point where government officials sense rebellion, they always resort to exceptions to the rule. So they invented qualified pension plans, HR 10, 401k, IRAs, etc. I don't necessarily think that everything the government does as alleviating rules has to do with preventing rebellion. That just seems like an amazing... um, that just seems like amazingly reductive. Like in a lot of cases it could be, and I I do believe this is the case with 401k and, and they will argue this as well, but like they need more people to invest more capital and investments means more growth in the market. And if you could find a good incentive for people to invest in the market, we could grow the market faster. And if we grow the market faster, the people who are in the market the most will receive the biggest gains from that. So a whole bunch of rich people and Wall Street got together and went to the government and said, hey, look, if you can create a plan that makes that incentivizes people to get into the market and disincentivizes them for getting out, that would be really helpful. And then things like the 401k come about. I don't think rebellion had anything to do with any of that. That just seemed like a stretch. And the only reason I mention it is I think he's going to talk about that at some point, but I, I don't really know. Like I said, a lot of this stuff is pointless. Like he just makes statements and doesn't really give conclusions to them. Um, So this was a really weird conclusion. So at the end of this section, he gets to the end and he just announces the best way to do this is through the magnificent idea of dividend paying whole life insurance. And that's it. So his argument here in this bit is that you have to avoid paying taxes, but you have to avoid paying taxes in a way the government doesn't want you to avoid paying taxes. And then he makes the claim that the best way to do that is through dividend paying whole life insurance. That all seems like a lot of logical leaps all put together. I don't personally care. Like, yeah, yeah, I don't want to be paying taxes, but what I want more than not paying taxes is greater wealth and greater um, retirement lifestyle. And so like, if you were to tell me, you know, you could have $20 million at retirement, but you have to pay the federal, you have you have to pay the IRS like $2 million. You're like, all right, well, I net 18 million. And then the alternative is you pay the IRS nothing, but we only give you a million. You're like, so I net a million. It doesn't make sense. And I noticed that this argument happens a lot in the whole life conversations where they're like paying, you know, like get out of paying taxes as like one of the top priority goals. Really the top priority goal is maximizing wealth. And sometimes that means tax avoidance, legal tax avoidance. Sometimes it doesn't. So This seems really reductive as well. The next bit is about the golden rule. Those who have the gold make the rules. And he talks about how capital is so important. um, And the people that have the capital are the ones who really control everything. And he made this really loose argument. And I've heard this a few times from whole life people that when you put your money into whole life, you control it. And that's it. I mean, there's no statement. You put it in the bank. 
The bank controls it. You put it in whole life, whole life controls it. All right, let's play this out from an individual's perspective and ignore all the rest of the stuff for the time being. You're an individual. You go to the bank and you're like, I'm going to give you $5. I expect that $5 to be there when I come back. And they're like, okay, we can not guarantee that, but we'll do our best. And you go to the insurance company. You're like, here's my $5. I expect that $5 to be there when I get back. And they're like, okay, we do a better job than the banks, but also not guaranteed, but we think we'll have it. And we go, okay. And we all walk our separate directions. And then someday I come back and get those $5 back. Like at what point in there was that any different? You put it in the bank, you put it in insurance companies, you don't own anything, but because R. Nelson Nash called this become your own bank and is arguing that somehow by treating the insurance policy as if it's a bank means that it's yours and you control it is a logical leap that I just can't wrap my brain around. Doesn't make any sense at all. There's no connection there. If I'm giving my money to someone else, I'm giving it to someone else and I'm trusting that they're going to do what they say they're going to do with it. That's always the case. That's why you diversify. I mean, that's definitionally why you diversify. The next section I thought was really interesting, and it's called the arrival syndrome. Arrival syndrome is where you have done a lot of work to try and improve yourself, you know, maybe improve your intellect, improve your wealth, improve your job, whatever, and you feel like you've made it to whatever goal it is that you made it to, and so your brain just sort of then checks out. It's like, well, I've, I've completed that task. I checked it off. I'm good to go. And what he's arguing here is that with arrival syndrome, we stop thinking creatively once we think we've figured out the solutions. And I would agree with that, right? So he's he's trying to present it in a way to say that we've all arrived at the assumption that banks are the place that we put our money, which, you know, here at The Wealthy Idiots, we don't think that that's the case. You should have as least amount of cash as possible and you should invest it. And when you invest it, it goes to places who are actually doing important things with that money. Like you put it into tech stocks and you're putting your money into like Apple, Google, whatever. They're the ones taking control of the money and doing stuff with it, not the bank. So we would also say that the banks aren't great. And then his argument is that, you know, you should think more creatively past what your normal assumptions are. And I would argue that he needs to be doing the same thing right? It almost seems like a counterproductive argument to say that like, you know, you need to get past your current comfort zone and think outside the box. And then you just stop at whole life. And one of the things I've noticed in my debates with whole life people is that I'll present things to them. I'll be like, look, you could do this. You don't have to put it into whole life. Um, and they shut down. They're like, no, no. (laughs) So I'm like, all right, so you guys have a little bit of arrival syndrome on this one. And the fact that you like claiming arrival syndrome and then trying to claim something in a book just seems so counterintuitive. Like, you know, think outside the box, which means let me tell you the specific idea I've decided is the final solution. (laughs) I mean, it's a contradiction already. Uh, And the last thing he talks about is the use it or lose it concept. And he just expands on the arrival syndrome concept where he just kind of says like, you know, once we kind of arrived at what we thought, we just sort of stopped there and then it's worse. We actually start to lose, you know, a lot of information because we're no longer progressing. We go backwards, which I have no, like he doesn't make any point on that. And I don't honestly care about anything he has to say in that chapter. I don't think it's useful or I, you know, it, I don't have anything to argue with it either. So, so the last bit here, he talks about creating the entity. And he's actually getting into now creating the whole life insurance policy. And he's discussing what you have to do to make sure this whole life insurance policy meets the requirements. Because if the whole life insurance policy doesn't meet the requirements, it has one of two problems. One is 
you're paying way too much of insurance and you're not getting any of this cash value or two, it breaks the point of the government, you know, believing that this is actually a insurance product now and it loses a lot of its benefits. So what he makes the argument for is like, you have to structure this thing in a way where you can maximize the cash value part and minimize the insurance part because you don't want to get eaten up by all these costs. If you imagine this thing, like here's the cash value, here's the insurance. We want to squeeze that insurance bit to be as tight as possible because we want this. And then my argument would be, why couldn't I just take all that money and do that with it? Why do I have to do the insurance part at all? And then we're back to the original question of, you know, the original responses, which is like, oh, well, it's got advantages that, you know, that are unique, but then I can reproduce them. So they're not unique, right? It's actually really easy to produce the stuff that's happening in whole life insurance. Not difficult at all. And we can get into that at some point. We can talk about it, but like we, we talked about it before and I'm sure we will in here. Um, but yeah, that's just amazing to me. It's almost like he, he recognizes the fact that you have to like minimize the costs in order to make this work. And then just ignores the fact that you can creatively think past that and just not have the costs at all. Like, I feel like that's the, that's the easy answer. That's the one I would go with. Like if you're talking about thinking outside the box, you're like, well, could I do this without paying all these fees? And if the answer is yes, maybe that, I mean, maybe you got to figure out what that looks like. Then he talks about how all the other types of life insurance won't solve this problem because, they have issues and we would also agree with that. I mean, whole life has issues too. <laughs> and that's the end of chapter two of becoming your own banker. You still can't become your own banker. That's not a thing. Following the wealthy idiot baby steps of figuring out what your net worth is and then looking at ways to maximize that impact. And whole life just drains that goal tremendously enough where it, it doesn't make any sense anymore. It, it does everything in reverse. And I'm sure we're going to get into that. So I won't talk about that anymore. Um, but that was chapter two. I still feel like we haven't gone into any kind of real information. We haven't got any real data out of any of this stuff where we keep getting these sort of like really vague sort of pointless arguments that he's making that haven't really connected. The whole thing's very bizarre, feels very cultish. Um, and that doesn't surprise me at all. So that wraps up today's episode. We hit all the good stuff, the news, the video reviews. We're reviewing this book. We're going to come back next week with more content. Please make sure to like and subscribe. Um, if you got any questions, throw them down below. If you have arguments, throw them down below. We love all of it. All, all we're trying to do here is tell you what we've done to be successful because we have not made any money doing this. We've only made our money from working and investing and we've been successful at it. If we could do it, we feel like you could do it too and we just want to tell you that. And so we're always open to learn and have discussions and figure out new stuff. If you've got that one unique thing that Whole Life Insurance does, you could toss it down that comment section. I would love to see that. We can have a discussion about it. I promise to be respectful. And uh, check out wealthidiots.com for news, tips, and tools. We have it all. And I want to thank you again for stopping by. I'll see you guys next time. <laughs>